<coughs> the Gospel according to Matthew and chapter 13, from verse 3. I'm reading from the Revised Standard Version. And he, that is Jesus, told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky gr ground where they had not much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun arose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seed, seeds fell upon thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and brought forth grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to him who has will more be given, and he will have ab abundance. But from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. With them indeed is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, You shall indeed hear, but never understand. You shall indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears are heavy of hearing, and their eyes they have closed lest they should perceive with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn for me to heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is he who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the delight in riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is he who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Another parable he put before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the householder came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then has it weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, 
lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Another parable he put before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. All this Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed means the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers, and throw them into the furnace of fire. There men will weep and gnash their teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who hears, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net which was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it to shore and sat down and sorted the good into vessels, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire. There men will weep and gnash their teeth. Have you understood all this? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. I do once more want to say that if you're going to get anything out of these studies, you do need to read the Gospel of Matthew. Read it and reread it and reread it and read it in different modern versions as well as studying it in the revised or the authorized uh, verse by verse. Well, now, I want uh, this evening, first of all, to deal with this chart here on the board, and then I want to go on to the date and the the authorship and date and questions um, relating to that. So we shall start off on a rather technical note, and I trust by the grace of God that we shall end on a much more helpful and life-giving note, if we can reach the matter of the key to the book. Now, first of all, I don't think a lot needs to be said. All of you have got this chart on the back, the last page of your notes. 
you will see that it is um, uh, a listing of all the material which is peculiar to the gospel according to Matthew. There are four events connected with Christ's birth which are found in no other place in the New Testament. The vision of Joseph, the wise men, uh, the massacre of the babes at Bethlehem, and the flight into Egypt, and the return from Egypt, and the decision to go into Galilee to Nazareth. Then we have ten parables which are peculiar, exclusive to Matthew. We have the tares, the hidden treasure, the pearl of great price, the dragnet, the unmerciful servant, the laborers in the vineyard, the two sons, the marriage feast, the ten virgins, and the talents. These parables are only found in the gospel according to Matthew. Then we have three miracles uh, only, which are found nowhere else uh, in the gospels. The first, the, two, the miracle of the two blind men. The second is the dumb demoniac. And the third is the coin in the fish's mouth. And then lastly, we have five events to do with Christ's death and resurrection, his passion. First, we have the suicide of Judas. Then we have the dream of Pilate's wife. Then we have the resurrection of some of the saints um, on the day of resurrection uh, when there was an earthquake. It all goes together. He's the only person who records the earthquake. He is the only person who tells us about some of the saints arising and appearing to many in Jerusalem. Then we have the bribery of the temple guard, of the tomb guard, rather. And lastly, we have the baptismal commission. We've called it the baptismal commission because it is the only um, place we have recorded uh, the, the words, Go ye therefore and um, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Now this material is all exclusive to the gospel according to Matthew. It may help you to uh, understand that. I think many of us tend to think that uh, um, th this is found elsewhere. There are many little things that come home to us when we actually um, underline it as we have here. Now, what about the matters relating to authorship and date? Now, it may surprise um, many of you that all four Gospels are anonymous. Not one of the four Gospels actually claims, um, uh, in so many words, to have been written by the name that is attached to it. I suppose you are all aware that the title of the Gospels, the Gospel according to Matthew, is not original. Nor is it the title, the Gospel according to Mark, or the Gospel according to Luke, or the Gospel according to John. These four Gospels, these four books, are in fact anonymous. And Matthew is indeed anonymous. 
Uh, it nowhere claims to be the work of Matthew the Apostle. Nowhere from Matthew chapter 1 to Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, will you find in any single place that it claims in so many words to be from the pen or the hand or even the mouth of Matthew uh, the uh, Apostle. Both Matthew and Mark give us hardly any internal evidence. In other words, we cannot by exploration discover from evidence within the Gospel who could be the author. Whereas Luke and John do give us a certain amount of internal evidence which leads us to suspect who is the author. Uh, from the very earliest days, however, Matthew's name has been associated with this gospel, going right back to the first half of the second century. That is anywhere between 100 A.D. and 150 A.D. Um, uh, we have uh, uh, this tradition that this gospel was written by uh, Matthew. Indeed, one of the most remarkable facts is that the whole of antiquity is united, absolutely united, without a single voice of protest or even of doubt in ascribing the authorship of this gospel to uh, Matthew, Papias, Irenaeus, Origen, all these early church fathers in the first 300 years all ascribe dogmatically the gospel, this gospel to Matthew the Apostle. In fact, they, they state that it was written in Hebrew, by which they mean Aramaic, Hebrew, um, and uh, was written for Hebrew Christians. It was written in Aramaic for Hebrew Christians by Matthew the Apostle. Eusebius, the great church historian, tells us that Matthew felt called to the Jews. But later he went to the Gentiles um, feeling that he must obey the commission, uh, go uh, ye into all the world and make disciples of all nations, uh, and that he wrote this gospel to supply the want of his presence. In other words, when he had to leave the beloved Hebrew Christians that he had worked amongst and preached to and ministered, seen many of them converted, when he left them, um, he felt that in order to supply the want of his presence, as Eusebius puts it, he wrote it all down so that it could in fact be read publicly uh, in his absence. Now, tradition tells us that Matthew spent 15 years in Judea, and then that he went to Ethiopia, Persia, Media, and Parthia. That's the tradition that has come down to us from uh, the earliest days. It seems somewhat remarkable, therefore, that by 125 A.D. it was universally ascribed to Matthew. 
if it was not, in fact, his book. We would have expected that at least some rumours or some uh, breath of a rumour that it wasn't genuinely Matthew's work would have somehow um, uh, made its way into daylight. It seems quite remarkable, and don't think that people were so gullible in the early days. Much discussion raged over some of the other um, letters and books. But over this, uh, there is nothing but unanimity. On the other hand, no trace has survived whatsoever of this alleged Aramaic original. Because if we believe the early church fathers, Matthew was originally written in Aramaic for Hebrew Christians. Now, no trace whatsoever has survived of that original Aramaic um, edition. All scholarship agrees that this gospel was in its present form in Greek by the second half of the first century. And the majority feel that it bears no trace at all of being a translation. Now, that's quite serious in one way, because it means that normally, if, if a work's a translation, uh, those who are experts in this uh, can trace the translating work. But Matthew seems to be a genuinely original work in Greek. So, on the other hand, we don't seem to have any evidence for the early church father's testimony uh, to the fact that this was written by Matthew the Apostle in Aramaic. Now, we have Greek manuscripts in full from the 4th and 5th century after Christ, although we have portions and fragments of this gospel of a very much earlier date indeed. We also have some very early quotations in the works of the early church fathers and other writers from the second century onwards. Well, now, who is Matthew? Who is Matthew? Uh, evidently, there's some discussion as to whether Matthew did write this. What do we know about Matthew? He is, of course, uh, one of the more obscure apostles in the sense that we haven't got the great amount of biographical material that we have got for Peter and John and James and some of the others. We don't know very much about Matthew. What we do know is that he appears in the other Gospels, other than Matthew, as Levi, uh, except in the lists of the Apostles, where he always appears as Matthew. Now, that has led... Um, to the suggestion that probably Christ gave him the name of Matthew when he called him. That up to then he was Levi, but he was called Matthew afterwards. Matthew means gift of God. And we have it, of course, today, in, especially in the continent, for those of you, your, your origins there, in the Greek name, the Greek uh, um, translation of it, Theodore, means gift of God. Um, now, if you turn to Matthew chapter 2, Mark chapter 2, verse 14, you will find what we're talking about. Mark chapter 2, 
verse 14. And as Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the place of toll, and he said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. Now if you look at Luke, the next gospel, Luke chapter 5 and verse 27, we read, And after these things he went forth and beheld a publican named Levi sitting at the place of toll, and saith unto him, Follow me. And he forsook all and rose up and followed him. Now in Matthew chapter 9, we have the same incident, Matthew 9, verse 9, and as Jesus passed by from thence, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the place of toll, and he saith unto him, Follow me, and he arose and followed him. As I've said, Matthew means gift of God. He was a Galilean, that is, he came from the same area as the Lord Jesus and the, most of the other uh, apostles, and he lived at Capernaum, which was a sizable town in those days on the Lake of Galilee. He was a customs officer, which is rather interesting. It encourages some of us to think that customs officers can get saved, or tax. Uh, inspector, tax inspector, or tax collector, which may encourage many more here um, to feel that such can get saved. This was Matthew's profession. This was his occupation. A very despised and hated profession. I'm not sure it's so popular uh, even today. He was a tax inspector, or a tax collector, or a customs officer. Um, he was probably a wealthy man. Uh, this is one of the reasons why um, tax inspectors were disliked. They tended to pocket quite a bit of the taxes, or they used to accept bribes. Most of them were wealthy people. Remember Zacchaeus was another tax collector or tax inspector. Uh, most of them were wealthy. Now, we get this idea that Matthew was wealthy because in Matthew, um, uh, um, no, Luke, I think it is, in Luke 5, Luke 5, verse um, 28, he forsook all and rose up and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a great multitude of publicans and of others that were sitting at meat with them. Uh, this would have been quite an expensive business, and it is thought that when it says great feast, it really must have been a great feast indeed. And the fact that it underlines the fact that he forsook all means that he probably was a wealthy man when the Lord Jesus said to him, follow me, and he gave up everything and followed the Lord. Now, if he was the author of this gospel, then he was an eyewitness of the events he records, which was not the case with either Mark or Luke. There is a possibility that Mark may have been an eyewitness. Uh, but Luke, we can more or less confidently say, was not an eyewitness of the things he recorded concerning the Lord Jesus. Uh, if Matthew is the author of this gospel, he actually was present and he was within the inner circle, which is something we cannot say for Mark. He was right within the inner circle. Uh, he knew all that was going 
on. It would then be quite logical and reasonable to suppose that he wrote this gospel in Aramaic and that he based that work upon notes and jottings which he made at the time of the events or discourses he describes or records. Now, as a tax collector or tax inspector or customs officer, however you like to look at it, he would have been um, not only a very ready writer, but a man who was used to having to jot down things quickly. It is quite interesting. He, was, he wasn't an, uh, an illiterate man. Peter was a fisherman. Matthew would have been an educated man. He could read and write. He, he spoke probably in, in all likelihood both Aramaic and Greek, and he may well have understood Latin as well, being the official business uh, side of documents and so on, to do with the uh, empire. So it is quite possible that here was a man who could have taken down notes and jottings um, uh, for his memorizing, as it were, things that he had heard and seen, uh, and that later this became the basis of this um, uh, Aramaic uh, or original. The generally accepted view of modern scholarship is that Mark is the earliest gospel, and that both Matthew and Luke relied very much upon Mark for material. It then follows that Matthew could not be the author, because relying as he does upon so much material in Mark, uh, it, it, he wouldn't have needed to rely upon it if he'd been an eyewitness of the events. In other words, to say if Mark was the earliest gospel and, and Matthew was taken so much from Mark, why did he need to? He couldn't have been the author. Because he would have been an eyewitness of the things. He would need to rely upon Mark's testimony. This is uh, the view of quite a bit of modern uh, scholarship. Uh, thus, Matthew is not looked upon as an authoritative, independent, first-hand account of an eyewitness, but an edited revision of Mark with the inclusion of another source called Q. Now, this mysterious source called Q comes from the German Quelle, which means source or fountain. And the idea is that somewhere or other there is a mysterious source that no one has yet discovered and no one knows really where it could be found, which underlies both Luke and Matthew. But Matthew is really only a revised edition of Mark with quite a bit of this uh, source Q uh, uh, in it. Another view is that Matthew compiled a collection of Christ's sayings and other facts, especially a collection of Old Testament proof texts which he saw fulfilled in the person and work of Christ, all in Aramaic, and that this material is embodied in the present gospel. The present gospel being a much bigger uh, work but uh, that the original sort of idea came from this uh, Aramaic work of uh, Matthew. Uh, thus, it is suggested that the author was some unknown Hebrew Christian um, uh, of the end, at the end of the first um, uh, century and the beginning 
uh, end of the first century and the beginning of the second century. Uh, that's the view generally held, uh, that it is unknown Hebrew Christian of the end of the first, beginning of the second uh, century. There are, however, a number of facts in the defense of the traditional view of the authorship. And I list them for you. First, it seems extremely strange that a forger used the name of Matthew without making any bold claims. He was, in fact, one of the most clever forgers in history because he resisted uh, very strongly the temptation to insert a few sort of um, little proofs as to authorship. So clever has the forger been that he has given us a first-class problem. Uh, this seems quite remarkable. Now, the pseudo-gospels, of which there are a large number, there's the gospel according to Thomas, there's the gospel according to Peter, uh, just for example, or other ones too, the pseudo-gospels, the false gospels, are filled with claims such as, I, Peter, saw so-and-so and so-and-so, uh, or I, Thomas. It's quite patently clear that a claim is being made for either Peter's authorship or Thomas's authorship. However, in this gospel according to Matthew, no such claim is made. Never does Matthew say once, I, Matthew. Never once, in fact, does he give us even an indication that it could have been Matthew. I say that this is extraordinary. Either the forger was one of the most clever people who was really akin to one of our modern psychologists of the very first order, and understood that by so hiding his identity he would fool us all, or he was rather a stupid uh, in his approach, and should have at least put a few more little sort of tidbits here and there through the work, which would have fooled us a little more than modern scholarship seems to have been fooled. And the second thing is that John the Apostle lived to see the completion of the canon of Scripture, of the New Testament. And he must have known all about the Gospel according to Matthew. It is extraordinary that he who knew Matthew and must have known the truth of the document never raised a single protest about its genuineness. I mean, we're not saying, no one's arguing that the record itself is not genuine, but the fact that it's been attached to the name of Matthew, you would have thought John at least would have said something about it not being the authentic work of Matthew, the apostle. The third thing is the complete agreement of all the early writers of the first three or four centuries as to the authorship accords with the known character and background of Matthew. Not only in the scripture itself, he was a Galilean. And most of, the, of, of Matthew is to do with the Galilean ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is rather interesting. Um, uh, there are other things also that accord with what we know of Matthew and what we know of his background. Again, if tradition is right, then again it all falls in very clearly with the tradition that has come down uh, to us. The fourth thing is that as a tax collector in Galilee, he would have spoken both Aramaic and Greek. 
So there is no need to worry about it being in uh, Greek. There is no reason at all why Matthew did not first write an account in Aramaic, and then little, a little later, when it became very much more popular, and when he moved away from Aramaic-speaking Christians to Greek-speaking areas, he didn't uh, publish a completely new edition. Now, this is not to be laughed at, and it's not just wriggling out of it. He could easily, there is no reason at all why he didn't sit down and either enlar enlarge the original, but he needn't have translated it word for word. He may have put it straight into Greek. Now, this would get over the, uh, the problem we have, that there doesn't seem to be any trace of translation. In other words, there was, uh, it, uh, um, the Gospel according to Matthew is not a Greek translation of an Aramaic original, but is a Greek edition, a Greek edition. In other words, it was uh, a new work in Greek, uh, just like the other was a work following the same line, but it was from the moment go, it was in uh, Greek. Well, I suggest to you something to think about. Uh, the, the, the sixth thing is this, we have some, some slender internal evidence. Now, if this was the only internal evidence we had, I would uh, account it very small indeed. But in the light of some of these other things, I think we have some very slender internal evidence. And it is found in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 10. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 10, we read this. It came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat, in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with Jesus. Now, this is a very interesting phrase. In the house. In the house. Not in a house. Not in so-and-so. But in the house. It's rather interesting. And the phrase can be, in Greek, can be literally, could be literally translated at home. Uh, it came to pass he sat at meat at home. It almost suggests that it was Christ's house that the feast was held at, uh, that uh, all these publicans and sinners came to. Now, if you turn over to um, Mark chapter 2, verse 14, we read this. Well, um, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the place of Toll, and he said unto him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And it came to pass that he was sitting at meat in his house. In Levi's house. Now, if that is so, then the Gospel according to Matthew suggests that the author, whoever was writing it, it was at home. In the house. Uh, not in somebody else's house, but it's a, a very small bit of uh, internal evidence. Very small indeed, but it is interesting. It is also interesting to note that Matthew's Gospel always refers to Levi as Matthew. Always. Never as Levi. Which is rather uh, interesting. Uh, the other thing is this, that in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 3, there is a very interesting insertion in the list of the twelve apostles. These twelve apostles are more or less the same in all the Gospels and in Acts. But here in Matthew chapter 10, verse uh, 3, we have the insertion, the publican, and Matthew, the publican, which is rather interesting.
Um, perhaps others would not have liked to have said it uh, quite so clearly, especially in a list of the apostles. That was something that belonged to the old man, the old creation that had passed away. Uh, but if Matthew was in fact the author of this, then he was entitled in speaking of the grace of God to point out that it was Matthew, the erstwhile publican. Well, there you are. Uh, I conclude then that the traditional view of the authorship of Matthew has not been sufficiently demolished um, for what it's worth. That's what I conclude. You may not conclude the same as I, but I conclude that there has not been a sufficient demolition of the traditional view that Matthew wrote this gospel. Um, and I suggest that he is the most likely author of this book. Now, when was it written? Exactly when it was written is unknown. By the first half of the second century AD, it was in circulation. There are many references in the book to Jerusalem and uh, the temple. For example, Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 24, and verse um, 2. <clears throat> but he answered and said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And then verse 15. When therefore ye see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let him that readeth understand, then let them that are in Judea flee unto the mountains. Um, there is absolutely no hint of any uh, fulfillment of these words of the temple not being left even one stone upon another. Um, even if we see in the future a further fulfillment, especially of the verse 15, uh, we know that it was uh, fulfilled in AD 70 in an initial way, primary way, in the sense that Jerusalem was completely destroyed and the abomination of desolation was indeed set up in the, in the temple on the altar. Now, we know that's a fact. Uh, yet here we have absolutely no word, and it was fulfilled, it has been thus fulfilled, which would suggest that the, this book was written before 70 AD. There are other references, too, to these things, where, we, where if it was written after 70 AD, you would have thought that some note would have been added uh, to say this has been fulfilled in the complete destruction of these things. I don't know. Um, certainly that would point to a date before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. On the other hand, we have two other verses in chapter 27. Chapter 27, verse 8, which says, Wherefore that field was called the field of blood unto this day. <coughs> the field of blood unto this day. Chapter 28 Verse 15, so they took the money and did as they were taught, and this saying was spread abroad among the Jews and continueth unto this day. Now, that's a strange uh, little um, comment if the gospel was written at a very early date. Is it not? If it was written, as some have suggested, in 40 AD, just seven years after Christ 
was crucified. It seems possibly as rather strange comment to say that this field of blood is still called today that. We would expect it really to be called because it was a field that was specially bought with this polluted money that was paid um, to Judas for the betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Judas threw it back at the chief priests, they didn't know what to do with it. So observing their religious scruples, they bought a field to bury strangers in. And it was called the field of blood. Now that would suggest that probably perhaps something like 20 years had elapsed. And that they could therefore say, and it continues, and it's called that to this day. This, this rumour is continuing, uh, uh, circulating to this day. Now, that seems to me that we can't really give it a very early date, and we can't give it a date later than seven, 70 AD. So, I think, uh, I suggest that this uh, book, this gospel, was written between AD 50 and AD 70, and that in all likelihood it was written somewhere around 60 AD. Well, now, that's the authorship and the date. <coughs> now, let's turn to the key to the book. What is the key to this gospel according to Matthew? Now, it's not hard to find the key. <coughs> well, I, <coughs> I would have thought, I don't know how many of you have read through the gospel according to Matthew. I won't embarrass you by asking you to raise your hand. But um, if you have read through the Gospel according to Matthew, I would have thought that one word came uh, up again and again with almost a monoton almost in a mon monotonous way. And it is the word kingdom. I, I think even the most superficial reading of the Gospel according to Matthew must lead you to see <clears throat> that one of the words used very much in this book, is the word kingdom. Now, <clears throat> in God's mind, there can be no kingdom without the king. This is very, very important. We might still be a kingdom, even if we have a regency. But in God's mind, there can be no kingdom without the king. Indeed, in God's mind and in it is, in fact, somehow almost inherent within the word that is used, which we've translated kingdom. The idea is that everything stems from the king. Everything is bound up with the authority of the king. Everything goes back to the power, the royal prerogative of the king. So there can be no kingdom without the king in God's mind. The kingdom, in fact, is the embodiment of the king. It is the embodiment of his character. It is the expression of his authority. Expression of his authority. It is, as it were, the means by which uh, he is set forth in all its laws and in all its business and in all its work. Now, I think this is very, very important for us to understand. Because otherwise, a little later, we shall make some basic mistakes about the word kingdom. It is essential for us to understand that in God's mind, the word kingdom is intimately connected and related to the person of the king. 
No king, no kingdom. The king is in fact the kingpin uh, in uh, the whole system. He is the um, heart, the center, the meaning of it all. So I would like to suggest that the key to this book is the king and the kingdom. It is the word kingdom that you will hit again and again and again, although the word king also is found, especially in the latter chapters of the book. But it is in, because the word kingdom is the one used, does not mean to say that it is not the king who is the key. Uh, the king and the kingdom uh, are the key, the twofold key to this gospel according to Matthew. Now, the word kingdom is used in this book approximately 50 times, which means that you will find almost two occurrences of the word kingdom in every chapter, working it out like that on average. Not quite true. Uh, but there are, it is used 50 times in the whole of this book, and the phrase exclusive to man, which seems to surprise some people, but it's exclusive to Matthew. The kingdom of heaven is found 33 times in this book, and alone in this book. Now, we find many other words related to the word kingdom. We read of <clears throat> the gospel of the kingdom in Matthew 4, 23, 9:35, chapter 24, verse 14. The gospel of the kingdom. We read of the sons of the kingdom in chapter 8, verse 12, and chapter 13, verse 38. We read of the mysteries of the kingdom, or the secrets of the kingdom. I like the word mysteries better. The mysteries of the kingdom in chapter 13, verse 11. We read of the word of the kingdom in chapter 13, verse 19. We read of the keys of the kingdom in chapter 16, verse 19. We read of the disciples to the kingdom, or in the Revised Standard Version, um, uh, a scribe trained for the kingdom of, trained for the kingdom of heaven. Disciples to the kingdom of uh, heaven. We read of the kingdom of your father. We read of the kingdom prepared from before the foundation of the world. In chapter 25, verse 34, we read of my father's kingdom in chapter 26, verse 29. Now, I hope all that just leads you to see that this word kingdom is found everywhere in this book and that everything is connected to it. The gospel of the kingdom, the word of the kingdom, the mysteries of the kingdom, the sons of the kingdom. Everything is somehow or other related to the kingdom. Now, this word kingdom. The English word kingdom, now listen carefully and seek to follow me in this and the Lord help you. The English word kingdom does not unfortunately adequately convey the meaning of the Greek word. And this is very important for an understanding of this whole matter. For the English word does, for the Greek word rather, does not mean merely the territory or the people ruled over. Now, if I say to you, kingdom, the United Kingdom, what do you think? Do you think about the Queen? Of course you don't think about it.
about the Queen. Do you think about the throne? Of course you don't think about the throne. You think about Britain. Scotland, Wales, England, and Northern Ireland. Not necessarily in that order. Um, but that's the way you think. <laughs> the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom. It doesn't matter how you look at it, you think of it like that. You, you think of the kingdom of something else. You, you used to be the kingdom of Burunda. I think it was Burunda, anyway. I'm not quite sure. Someone could correct me afterwards. But you didn't think of some dear old gentleman who wore some feathers and some paint. You didn't think of him. You thought of a certain territory. Um, you thought of a certain tribe, a certain people that were governed. Now, this is why this word kingdom can be misleading. Because whenever we read the word kingdom in Matthew, we immediately think of territory. Or we immediately think of the sphere. We immediately think of the people who are ruled. Now, this is not the primary meaning of this word. Unfortunately, the only way that we can put over the idea behind this Greek word is by two English words. We cannot put it over by one. Because really, um, this word denotes firstly and primarily not the territory and not the people ruled over, but the sovereignty of the king. The authority of the king. The royal power in the hands of the king. That's what is really um, set forth and denoted by this word. <clears throat> Perhaps the word kingship is a better word. If you were always to think of kingship, whenever you read the word kingdom, it will help you a lot. Kingship. Now, we've got a kind of way now of so understanding this word kingdom that we have an almost kind of traditional reaction to, to changing the word. But you see, we must not throw out the word kingdom, but alongside the word kingdom, we must bring the word kingship. Now, if we think of it as kingship and kingdom, we get, we're much nearer to the real idea, the real meaning behind this word. Kingship is, in fact, more important than kingdom. Um, Matthew, then, uh, speaks, really, um, of the sovereign reign of God. This word, kingdom, uh, kingship, it speaks of the spiritual reign of God. The spiritual sovereignty of God. The authority of God, if you like. The authority of God. Or put it another way, which may help you even more, the throne. Now, if we were speaking of the United Kingdom in the biblical way, we would immediately think of the throne. In other words, in our minds, the very first thought when we thought of the United Kingdom would be the throne. The throne. Immediately think of the throne and all the associations of the throne. Then we would think of the people the throne rules over. Then we would think of the territory the throne rules over. But the first thought immediately is the throne. Now, this is what this word kingdom really denotes. It is the throne of God, or if you like, the throne of heaven. So if you start to think of it like that, it will lead you into so much wealth, spiritually, in this 
book. Matthew is all about the kingship of heaven, the throne of heaven, the government of heaven, the sovereignty of heaven, the authority of heaven, the royal power of heaven. And it is all embodied and expressed and realized in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you get that, you've got the key to Matthew. This, 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 um, this uh, uh, kingship of heaven is embodied, exemplified, and realized in Jesus Christ. He is the very embodiment of the kingship of God. He is the very embodiment of the kingship of heaven. This is what God means by his throne. God doesn't mean some great gold structure that sort of dominates everything and dazzles everyone. God means by his throne the kind of man that Jesus is. God means by his throne the quality of character that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. God means by his throne the kind of authority that the Lord Jesus Christ exercises. Now, if you understand that, you begin to realize what the gospel, according to Matthew, is all about. You see, this kingship of heaven, this kingship uh, of God, is all embodied and expressed and realized in Jesus Christ. Before Jesus Christ came, we had faint pictures of it. We had a little faint picture in Moses. We had a little faint picture in Samuel. Then we had a much greater picture in David, we had a faint picture in one way in Solomon. We had a picture in Hezekiah. We had a picture in Jehoshaphat before him. We had a picture in Josiah after him. But each one of them failed. Every single one of them failed. In some way, the Spirit of God um, upon them uh, 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 expressed something of the kingship of heaven, the kingship of God. But it was only when the Lord Jesus came that God's ideal kingship was realized. Then, once and for all, for all eternity, God realized his conception of kingship. Now, if you turn to Matthew chapter 3, we, we have three little words I want to read first. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Repent ye, this is John the Baptist crying in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the New English Bible says the kingdom of heaven is upon you. At hand doesn't mean it's just a way there. It means it's here, at hand. See, that's the idea. At hand. Put out your hand, you've got the kingdom of heaven. Put out your hand, you've got the kingdom of heaven. John cried in the wilderness. The message, his message was, Repent! The kingship of heaven is upon you. The kingship of heaven is at hand. Now if you turn over to chapter 4, verse 17, From that time began Jesus to preach and say, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the next great note is not only the herald of the king, but the king himself. Repent ye, he says. The kingship of heaven is upon you. It's at hand. Here it is. It is Christ. He is the embodiment. 
of God's kingdom. Now, uh, if you turn to uh, Matthew chapter 10, we find that the twelve apostles are sent out. And he says um, in verse 7, And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingship of heaven is upon you. So we have this threefold reiteration of this message. First, the herald of the king. Here's the herald of the king, and he cries out, Repent! The kingship of heaven is upon you. Then comes the king himself and cries, Repent ye! That for the kingship of heaven is upon you. Now go out the apostles of the king, the servants of the king, and they cry, The kingship of heaven is upon you. Isn't that remarkable? Surely that leads us immediately to see the key to this remarkable book. The New Testament opens with the glorious announcement that God's king and God's kingdom have arrived. After millenniums of strife and darkness and waywardness and backsliding, the king and the kingdom have arrived. Now that's why the New Testament, the first book of the New Testament, opens with this glorious note. He doesn't speak just of our salvation, but it speaks of the thing that goes right behind our salvation, the authority of God. What, where, where would you be? Where would I be if there was no authority behind our salvation? If the one who died to save us was not able to keep us? If the one who's laid down his life was in fact not able to carry out what he laid down his life for? The whole point is, my dear friends, Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. The kingship of God has come. The kingdom of God has arrived in him. That's the point. Now it is only seen by the eye of faith. The kingship of heaven. Heaven is the antithesis of earth. And Satan has inverted the order and got earth to be supreme, and all that's sensual and physical to be on top, and what is heavenly is somehow or other banished. Here comes the king, the kingship of heaven, to invert the order, and to bring back the rule of the Most High into the affairs of men, and into this whole creation. Now, God, and I want to make a point of this, we shall say more, there are elements uh, in which it is rightly said that the kingdom of heaven is a phrase that speaks in some of its elements of that which is in time. But I would like to say that it is not merely and market well some temporal, earthly kingdom that the Lord Jesus has come to to institute, never, never, but it is the establishment of the eternal reign and rule of God forever. The gospel according to Matthew is not just bound up with, with just simply times and seasons alone, it sees far beyond that, far beyond it, to a new heaven and a new earth. It is the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. The one 
who is a new beginning, the new beginning of God. Oh, I say, to me, this is wonderful. Because, you see, this whole matter of the kingship of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the, the, the king, as we see him in Christ, it's a matter to do with the establishment of God's rule and authority and government. Now, you may wonder what all that has to do with your salvation. My dear child of God, it has everything to do with your salvation. Indeed it has. If God had not set his holy hill, uh, his, his king upon his holy hill of Zion, if God had not found the man after his own heart perfect in all his ways, if God had not found the one who was tried in everything and found not wanting, there would be no salvation for any of us. The fact of the matter is that Matthew tells us that the king and the kingdom have arrived. Now all that goes back to the very beginnings of human history. It is not some sudden arbitrary thought of God that he would send his son into the world to be king. It goes right back to the very beginnings of human history, I say. It goes back beyond the beginnings of human history into times before. It goes right back to the very shadowy beginnings that we only dimly see and more dimly understand. Why is the history of this world so terrible a story. Why have there been millenniums of unhappiness and darkness, of war and strife? Why has evil been for the most part triumphant and good defeated? Why the never-ending sense of futility and emptiness and aimlessness and frustration in human life, common, I might say, from the very first fathers of the human race to till this day. Why all this? The reason is very simple. The reason is that man, the world, creation itself, the whole universe is infected and energized by a rebellion against God. Now that's what lies behind you and me. It lies behind our flesh life. It lies behind our very birth. It's in our bloodstream. There is a rebellion that's in us all. And we know it if we're honest. There is something in us that rebels against God. There is something in us that resents God. There is something in us that once at one moment it wants to reach out to God, somehow or other will not have his laws, will not have his ways. There is a rebellion. This rebellion is not just centered in you. It's not just centered in me. The whole human race, but more than the human race, the creation itself is infected and energized by this rebellion so that the thing has run like a poison into every part of the system of the, cos of the whole universe, of the whole cosmic universe. The thing has been infected and defiled and corrupted by this terrible rebellion against God. All history 
is but the expression of that rebellion. Where do we find it? Well, take your Bible. Turn to Isaiah and chapter 14 and verse 13. Listen to these words about Lucifer, son of the morning, the one we now call Satan, the devil. Listen, thou saidst in thy heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of congregation in the uttermost parts of the earth. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. There you have the beginning of the rebellion. I will make myself like the most high. I will ascend. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will ascend into heaven. Here you've got the beginnings of the rebellion in the universe. It started with Lucifer. It started with the son of the morning. It started in the angelic host. A great rebellion in which there was an exaltation of their, their selfhood, as it were, against God. That's where it started. Now if you turn back to Genesis and chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3 and uh, verse um, 5, <coughs> We read this. For this is what the serpent said. Lucifer again. This time he's the serpent. And this is what he says. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as God. Ye shall be as God. This thing's got into the bloodstream of the human race. First in Satan, then into us. I will be like the Most High. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Now, turn on. Let's see what's happened. 2 Corinthians, very swiftly, we haven't so much time now. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of the unbelieving that the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should not dawn upon them. The God of this world. So now this, this Satan, this devil, is called the God of this world. He has become a God. He has got what he wanted. He has become the one, the invisible principality, the invisible power that blinds men and women and possesses men and women and holds them enslaved in worship to him, though they know it not. Turn back to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 44. Listen to these words. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father it is your will to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and standeth not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar, and the father thereof. Strong words. Ye, that's you and me, are of your father the devil. Strong words, I say. The God of this age, the God of this world, your father, the devil. Oh, my. Now we begin to see the extent, I think, of this rebellion. John chapter 16, verse 11. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. The devil is here called the prince of this world. It is a very interesting thing that when he said to the Lord Jesus, Worship me, and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world and all the glory thereof. The Lord Jesus never said to him, you liar. You liar. He never said that. 
he just said, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. In other words, he never challenged or contradicted what Satan said. He is the prince of this world. World rulers of this present darkness. Principalities and powers that control the whole inhabited world and govern it. Control it. It's a terrible picture. And then if you turn to Ephesians 2, verse 2, Ephesians 2, verse 2, wherein ye once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the powers of the air, of the spirit that now worketh in or energizeth, is the exact word, the sons of disobedience. There you are. And last name, 1, 1 John, chapter 5, 1 John, chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in the evil one. Now, what did I say? I said the reason for all this darkness, for this story of strife and unhappiness, is that there has been a rebellion against God, and that, and that the whole world, the whole of humanity, creation itself, has been infected and energized by this rebellion. Thus, on the other side, the history of God's people has been one of incredible conflict and tribulation because they are in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, always the embodiment of the kingship of heaven. They are, as it were, here where the God of this world is supreme, where the whole thing lies in his power, where he is the prince of it all, the one that energizes everything. Here they are, a little enclave of God, a, a, a kind of, of, of uh, what shall I say, an embassy of heaven, a, a place where the flag of God is shown. In a world in open rebellion against God, mastered and controlled by God's enemy, God's children represent his kingship. Even if they represent it, and we, they have, certainly in the Old Testament, and certainly, unfortunately, in the New, in church history, very weakly, indeed, they nevertheless represent the kingship that Satan hates with an unbelievable hatred. It is the thing that somehow or other betokens his end, and he knows it. He hates the thing. They were, in the Old Testament, the guarantee, the token, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So whenever Satan sees that, he hates it. And that's why the Quakers used to call them the good seed. And why the bad seed always hated the good seed. They couldn't help it. They had to persecute them. They had to liquidate them. They had to destroy them. Get them out. There's, they're an alien, something alien amongst them. Something that is running contrary to the popular flow of the stream. That's why God's people have always been pilgrims and sojourners, not inhabitants. They have always been aliens. Seeking for another country, a heavenly country, which is far better. 
Well, now there is the picture for you. That explains the whole Old Testament and why there has been so much conflict and battle and why the enemy works unceasingly to divorce the children of God from the king. God's king. Now, in Matthew, at the beginning of the New Testament, God's king steps onto the scene, anointed by God to challenge the usurper and recover for God what has been lost. The battle of the ages has commenced. Now, as we study the book of Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, we're going to discover just how that battle has commenced and how it rages, and how God's king wins the battle and goes up into heaven with a great shout. He's won. Won forever this battle that has raged and will rage through all of time. I say it's tremendous when you think of it like that. The long-promised Messiah has come. That's why the Gospel according to Matthew puts so much upon his being the fulfillment of the promised Messiah. The Son of David. Not merely with a localized territorial ambition and purpose, but a cosmic one. One that simply, as it were, involves the whole universe and beyond it, a new heaven and a new earth. His arms reach out to recover everything that has been lost for God. God's king has entered the battle to save and redeem all who have been fathered by and enslaved by Satan. That's you and me. Thus, we see Christ bringing the kingship of heaven to us. No wonder it should not strike terror into us. When we hear the herald of the king crying, Repent! The kingship of heaven is upon you. When we hear the king crying out, repent, the kingship of heaven is at hand. When we hear the apostles proclaiming it, and later on Paul tells us, I have I preached the kingdom of God, testifying everywhere the kingdom of God. You see, we are people of the king. We are people of heaven. Now, I'm not raising any political issues, but you all, without any shadow of doubt, know that Rhodesia is in a state of rebellion. But in that state of rebellion, the British government and throne <coughs> has left the High Commissioner. And there, in a country in open rebellion, against the British government and against the throne. The throne has still got its ground. An enclave of the British throne. And that commissioner is being kept there, so I read in my papers, is being kept there as a token that we, we insist well, not me, but um, <laughs> the government insists uh, that Rhodesia cease to act in rebellion and return to legal government and to the crown, to the throne. Now, you know 
We are just like that dear child of God. We're here in this world. And all we're here, we're in a, in a world that lies in the evil one, where the God of this age has blinded the eyes of those, the minds of those that believe not. We're here in a world which is energized by Satan. And you know, we're here, and we're here because the King has got us here. He saved us. We belong to him. We are no longer inhabitants. We're pilgrims. We belong to the kingdom of God. And we're here insisting that this world is going to come back to its rightful king. And that one day the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of God and of his Christ. That's what we're here for. Now this is just what the book of Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, is all about. We see Christ bringing the kingship of heaven to earth. We see him administering God's government. Yes, we see him administering God's government in this gospel. We see him declaring God's mind in what we call dreadful type, the Sermon on the Mount. And then we see him manifesting God's authority over all that has come in by the devil. Sickness, disease, corruption, spirit possession, all these things that belong to the realm of darkness. We see him expressing God's authority over the whole thing. One word, one touch, and it's finished, done. We see him realizing God's salvation. Oh, thank God. I wouldn't want a saviour who'd only manifested the authority of God, who could only heal the body, but couldn't save the soul. But here he is supremely realising God's salvation by his death, dying for the salvation of every man and woman. We see him opening God's kingdom. And I think Matthew perhaps with his background, understood it more than others. He tells us the parable um, when the Lord says that you see, he said to the Pharisees and the chief Sadducees and the others, he said, you see, uh, the publicans and the harlots are going into the kingdom of God before you. He's opened it. Opened it. God's king. The one with authority. He's opened the kingdom of God to you and me, the likes of you and me. Not those, those uh, ethereal saints you see depicted in pictures of the Middle Ages. I don't think an evil thought has ever flitted through their mind. But the thought, the likes of you and me, flesh and blood, who know what sin is, who know what the fall is, who know what slavery and thraldom to Satan means. Christ, God's King, has opened the kingdom to us. He's not only done that, realized our salvation, opened the kingdom. Matthew's Gospel opens in its fourth chapter with the great declaration, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Baptizing with the Holy Spirit, with God's Spirit. 
oh, how wonderful when you think of it. Let me just run through it again. Here we see God's king administering God's government, declaring God's mind, manifesting God's authority, realizing God's salvation, opening God's kingdom, baptizing with God's spirit. Could there be anything more wonderful? I don't care what you think about the baptism of the Spirit. I'm just saying this, that it is the fact that the Spirit of God is put within us by the Lord Jesus Christ. No man can do it. No man can do it. But Jesus, the Lord Jesus, has gone up into heaven and received from God the Father the promise of the Spirit and poured him forth. Now whether you and I know it or not, he's poured forth. He's there for us. And Jesus, the glorified Jesus, the King, is the one who baptizes with the Spirit. How wonderful. We see then in Matthew 7 great steps. Into, with this I end. We'll go on next week from here. Seven great steps in the bringing in of the kingdom of heaven. The first is his birth. The second is his baptism and his anointing. The third is his temptation. In all points, like as we are, yet without sin. The fourth is his transfiguration. Qualified. By God, as the one who is absolutely perfect. Fifthly, Gethsemane, where the one who could have gone straight into heaven fought out the battle as to whether he was willing to go through. Not as I will, he said in the end, but as thou wilt. Sixthly, his death. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken? And seventhly, his resurrection. Now it is interesting that the Gospel according to Matthew does not speak of his ascension. We have those seven steps in Matthew. The seven great steps in the bringing in of the kingdom. And the end, what is the end? The beginning of the book, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. The end of the book, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given into my hands. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And lo, I am with you always, even to the close of the age. I thought the verse we read, we sang together in that hymn sums up what we've been saying this evening. To thee and to thy Christ, O God, we sing, we ever sing. For he hath crushed, crushed beneath 
his rod, the world's proud rebel king. He plunged in his imperial strength to gulfs of darkness down. He brought his trophy up at length, the foil usurper. <coughs> May God help us. And now, dear Lord, we do pray that this may be translated in some way into our life. <clears throat> if such a king has come for us, O oh, our Father, that we might know his kingship, that we might own his kingship, that we might know something in our lives of the kingdom of heaven. O oh, dear Father, make it real to every one of us that we become sons of the kingdom, disciples to the kingdom. We become those, dear Lord, who are the embodiment of thy Christ. We may become those together who know something of the authority of thy king, the power of thy king, the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen.